God's prophetic word through warnings next on Light on the Hill. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Many claim there is no prophecy to be found in 1st and 2nd Samuel, but that's really not the case, as we'll learn today on Light on the Hill. We're continuing a series entitled, In the Volume of the Book, A Study Through the Bible with an Emphasis on Bible Prophecy. As Pastor James Cadiz begins, he speaks for a moment about the warnings in 1st and 2nd Samuel that are prophetic. I want to do this because it's important, because Samuel establishes this for us even more than it already has been established in the Bible, and it's been established in the Bible for quite some time, and that's this. God's prophetic word extends in the form of warnings. It does. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most common ways we see his words being expressed to us. And oftentimes we don't put a value on it. We don't even look at it as prophetic in nature because it appears to us to be a simple warning that we don't actually take heed to. And then it becomes very prophetic, right? It becomes very real when we choose to mess around. Right? And so the reality of it is, God says, if you do these things, this is going to happen. Right? So don't do these things. And God even said that concerning the king. He says, look, if you want a king, you're going to have a king, but this is what the king is going to demand of you. This is what the king is going to do to you. He's going to you know, uh, uh, require all of this from you, and it's going to happen. And when it does happen, it's not going to be good. And of course, we know that that's exactly what took place. Saul became the king, and Saul took people's farms. He took people's money. He took people's wealth and resources. He took talented uh, young girls girls out of families and their whole compounds destroyed those compounds to bring in whatever he needed to to complete his administration he pulled away women from their lives to make candy he pulled away women from their lives to bake uh, bread he pulled women away from their lives to cook food for all of the people that um, he had an administration that ruled with him over if you really think about it people's lives were completely disrupted and totally ripped off taken away so much of what they had was removed from them because keep this in mind prior to that time every family had their own compound compound, right? Prior to that time, every family had their own bakers and had their own uh, farmers and had all of their own people. It was all them. It was all their family. And basically God told them, he warned them, if you want a king, if you want a human king, that king is going to require of your family so many resources that you are not ready to give up, but you're not going to be in a choice or you're going to be able to make that decision. He's going to take it from you. And if you thought it was expensive to bring a tithe to me that was, you know, 20 some odd percent of everything that you had, wait until the king requires a tenth of this and a tenth of that, a tenth of your cattle and a tenth of your, your farmings. And wait until he starts beginning to take away all the resources that your family has been so accustomed to having. Life is about to become way harder for you. And isn't that the truth of government, right? Isn't that typically what government does? Government makes life so much harder because government does not hold fast to its intended purposes, right? And we said, you know, our founding fathers even said this. When the people begin to fear the government, you have tyranny, right? When the government fears its people, you have freedom, and if you think about that, that was exactly what it began to happen with the nation of Israel. The people began to fear the government because they want the king, but the king demanded a specific lifestyle and God said that this would happen and it completely destroyed them. And of course, when you get into 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, 
you begin to see that God had actually chosen Saul to be the first human king of Israel. And the story that goes with that is substantial. I would recommend that you spend some time studying the events of those chapters because they are uh, very important. And of course, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12 serves as a confirmation to confirm the fact that Saul was indeed the one who was called by God to actually be the king in that moment. Now, of course, it didn't work out so well for Israel, did it, right? Saul kind of went crazy and some bad things had actually happened and it, it was uh, not a very good uh, situation. Matter of fact, it was a terrible situation. When you get into 1 Samuel chapter 13, you begin to look at Saul's foolishness, right? And when you think about the fact that Saul actually offered very foolishly an offering to the Lord, which was something that Samuel should have done. It wasn't the responsibility of Saul to have done it. He was informed that his kingdom wasn't going to last, right? He was told that he was going to lose his kingdom. And that was all related to his failure to obey God. If you remember the story, God actually told Saul, listen, Saul, you are obligated to do what I've asked you to do. You, when you go to battle, you're supposed to kill all these people. You're supposed to eliminate it all. Just completely rid yourself of it. And of course, uh, Saul went to battle. He did not do as God had told him. Saul decided he was going to keep some of the animals and decided that he would spare a few lives. And he did exactly what God told him not to do. And Samuel goes to confront him. And he basically says, hey, uh, Saul, what in the world? I'm hearing a little bit of... It doesn't sound like those are yours. And, and what's going on? And Saul said, oh man, I kept some of that to sacrifice to the Lord. And of course, if you remember, Samuel goes to Saul and he says, look, understand this, man. Your obedience is what's valued. Your sacrifice means nothing nothing if you're not obeying. And he says, obedience is better than sacrifice. And because you chose not to obey the Lord, you're going to lose your kingdom. You're done. You can't be the king anymore. And of course, that caused him to lose his mind. And there were uh, lots, of, lots of other crazy things going on. And then, of course, we begin to see other prophecies given to us in 1 Samuel. I'm recognizing I'm, I'm losing time. I've not even gotten to 2 Samuel yet. There's a bunch of stuff there. But there were prophecies to, uh, concerning the Amalekites that were being made, right? Very important prophecies regarding the Amalekites, right? Because think about this. Though the Amalekites Amalekites were actually uh, defeated and killed as prophesied as God said would actually happen. Understand, Saul was rebuked for not carrying out God's command and completely destroying the cattle and the sheep and the things that they all took. And the terrible part about that was when you stop for a moment to reflect upon that, it was that decision that was made that brought on all kinds of problems for the nation of Israel later on, right? So if Saul listened to God, when God said to do it, then there wouldn't be the kind of problems that had taken place. And it was such a terrible situation, but that's exactly what happened and of course as a result saw uh lost the kingdom because god says he's torn the kingdom up because of that disobedience and the fact that he chose not to do what god had told him to do when the amalekites came into play and then when we get into first samuel chapter 16 this is where david actually gets anointed king now what's very interesting is we have to connect david to the story that we read about in ruth if you remember the story in ruth if you remember uh naomi who was ruth's mother-in-law lost her husband and of course, she was not afforded the opportunity to get remarried in the law because she did have two boys. But her two boys tragically died as well around the same time. So she lost her husband. She lost her two sons. And her two sons who did get married did not stay married long enough prior to their death, right? They died and that, you know, ended their marriage, but they had not stayed married long enough to actually have children. So if you remember, Orpha went back to where she came from in hopes that she would remarry somebody. And Ruth actually said, no, no. 
mama, I'm going to stay with you. And wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God will be my God. And she makes that decision. Well, as a result of that, she ends up finding Boaz. God puts them together. Boaz becomes the person who acts as the kinsman redeemer. We talked about that at length last week. And as a result of that union and as a result of that relationship, if you remember, Naomi gets restored to a place of joy and happiness because Naomi has a grandchild. And the name of that grandchild, of course, which the grandchild that came from Ruth and Boaz was a person by the name of Obed. And if you remember the story of Obed, Obed has a son whose name is Jesse and Jesse has a son whose name is David. And that's where we read right here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, our introduction to David. Now, this is interesting because when God tells Samuel, go to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to actually find the next king of Israel. Of course, um, Samuel uh, is excited to follow through with that. He goes over and makes a very distinct recognition, and that is there are series of people that he felt would be qualified that were the sons of Jesse, and God said none of them are here. And he went from one person to the other, one person to the other, and Samuel said, no, it's not any of these. And so Samuel's a little frustrated because he goes through all of the sons, at least what he thinks are all of the sons. And then he goes to his, his uh, you know, to Jesse and he says, do you have any other sons? Because God says it's not any one of these. And he says, well, I got a little shepherd boy. He's, you know, he's off in the wilderness, you know, taking care of the sheep, bring him over here. So he comes over and God, you know, he's a ruddy looking kid, little tiny, tiny guy. Doesn't look anything like what you would expect a king to look like. He certainly didn't fit Saul's profile, right? And God knew because he told Samuel he knew that this would be the king. Samuel knew it. And then the reality of it is he anointed King David to be the king. Now, it's interesting because David did not become the king for quite some time, right? It was a while before David actually became the king after he was anointed. When you get into 1 Samuel chapter 17, it is a beautiful prophecy that relates to uh, God using David to triumph over Goliath and over um, the you know, the uh, enemies of Israel. And it was a very powerful story. The story of the Valley of Elah, by the way, there in First Samuel is one that should always be looked at on a regular basis by many of you. It's a very, very powerful thing. And then you get a prediction given to us in First Samuel chapter 23, if we push all the way there, where there was victory over the Philistines at Chaliah. Now, that story is an interesting one, right? But this directly relates to what had happened in that area and the defeat that took place was a result of God prophesying to David, listen, I'm going to give you victory here, so go for it. And David went when he, when it was literally against the odds to be able to have that type of victory. And then of course, there was another uh, prediction uh, that was made. And this one resulted in something that was actually terrible. Because if you think about it, Saul was in a position where he wanted to inquire about some kind of victory concerning the future. But Saul had lost his anointing. Saul, although he was technically still the king, knew that his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was completely out of his grasp. He knew that his time was up, and he knew that things were over, right? And the problem is Samuel had died, and the, and the nation of Israel was mourning. And when Samuel had died, there was no real prophets at that point or in that time that could be gone to to literally seek out and find uh, a word from the Lord concerning what was going on. And Saul back in the day used to go to Samuel and they would have a conversation together and he would ask Samuel, hey, listen, uh, here's the deal. You know, what's going on? Does God want me to do this or does God not? If God gives me the go ahead, I'll go ahead and do it. If he doesn't, I won't. And so what Saul actually does, which is pretty actually wicked and it's actually a pretty 
dark story in uh, 1 Samuel is Saul chooses to disobey God again and chooses to do something that's very, very wicked. And he basically goes and he consults a familiar spirit. If you remember the story, the witch at Endor, right? And you remember that whole story and he goes and he, he speaks with a familiar spirit and God allows Samuel, this really does happen. This wasn't some weird, deceptive, demonic thing. God allows Samuel, who is dead at this point, to uh, appear to Saul to give Saul a final word. And the final word, which of course came straight from the Lord was, you're going to die and your kids are going to die tomorrow, right? And that is, you know, a, a, imagine hearing that as a word from the Lord. You're probably after going to a witch and then having the witch actually resurrect a guy from the dead and the guy that gets resurrected from the dead says, you're going to be joining me. You're going to be here with me, you and your sons tomorrow. That's probably got to be a pretty spooky thing. Imagine the kind of sleep that that guy had. He guaranteed he didn't sleep that night, okay? That was probably not an easy time for him and it was probably something that was uh, 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 pretty awful, right? And then you get into first Samuel chapter 30. And then again, this is a, 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 what I would call kind of a closing story in 1 Samuel, but it's one nonetheless that's very important and one that's significant, where of course uh, there is a prediction that's made that David will conquer the Amalekites, which if you were a good student of the Bible, and especially during that time that was represented, the Amalekites would have been the impossible enemies to defeat. But God told David, you go and do it. Make sure you, uh, you do as I tell you, and he does, and God gives him the victory, right? Disobedience actually killed Saul, right? And that's exactly the very thing that happened. By the way, it's sad because when you get into chapter 31, that is where you hear about the death of Saul, and you hear about the death of, um, uh, of his uh, sons, his children. And it's kind of a terrible story, but it, it's, it's such a tragedy in that it tells us about the, the sadness associated with the disobedience of God. And so Saul dies, uh, the Amalekites are defeated, what God says is true, and that of course gets us into 2 Samuel, right? And so it's interesting because if you remember long before the time that Saul actually dies in 1 Samuel, right, we know the fact that God had anointed David to be king, right? We know that. And so though the anointing itself was not something that was uh, a prophecy, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't call him being anointed the prophecy. There were many many prophetic uh, utterances concerning the future reign of David that was provided for us that gives us an understanding of what actually would happen. And that's where all of this becomes very, very important to us. Perhaps the most significant of these things is to understand the covenant that was made with David, right, between God and David regarding the future and what would actually happen there. And I think that that starts in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, it's a very important place for us to go. Okay, so let's go there very quickly. And we are going to spend an overwhelming majority of our time talking about this particular area. And I think that it's important. We are not going to talk about, although it is an important place to bring up Psalm 89, we're not going to bring up Psalm 89 until we get into the Psalms, okay? I'll just tell you that right now and some of the prophetic implications related to that. The Psalms will actually be one whole study in and of itself, might actually be two studies in and of itself, uh, where we're going to spend some time talking about some of the prophetic things that we find there, but we don't have the time to do that here. But what is important is for us to take a very brief look at 
Second uh, Samuel chapter seven because it is very important, right? It's very important for us to look at. So look at this. The the history here of where we leave off in chapter seven or where we begin to pick up is the fact that God has blessed David. The word of the Lord that came to David concerning his ability to defeat the enemy has been granted to him. The nation of Israel is growing. It's strong. Lots of wonderful things um, are happening. David just finishes building up his beautiful palace there in the city named after him. And lots of wonderful things are taking place. And David, in all of the glory that surrounds him, is looking at the house that he is living in, and he has a problem with it. He has a serious problem with it. And this is what it says in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it starts in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round from all the enemies, that the king said, unto Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in thine heart for the Lord is with thee. Huge mistake that Nathan makes, right? Absolutely huge mistake. So understand what ends up happening. This is very, very important. I want you to, to get this, right? I want you to understand that David looks at the house that he's living in and he says, I'm living in this beautiful house, but God is living in a tent. He's referring to the tabernacle. And David says, I got to do something about that. And Nathan says, hey, David, God bless you. That sounds great. Go do what's in your heart, right? But God wakes up Nathan and tells Nathan, hey, I didn't tell you that. That isn't something that I, that I told you. Look what it says in verse four of chapter seven. And it came to pass that at night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt. Even to this day, I uh, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel saying, why build you not me a house of cedar? Have I ever asked anybody to build me a house, David? You know, that's what he's basically saying. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant, David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people in Israel and have caused thee to rest from all uh, thine enemies. Also, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, that thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the thorn of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words uh, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. I want you to, to picture what happens here, right? 
David's all excited. Nathan tells him, go build the house. Nathan goes to sleep and hears from the Lord. And the Lord says, you erred. This is not what I wanted you to tell David. This is what I want you to tell David. And he basically tells David, look, you can't build the house. You got bloody hands. <laughs> it's impossible. Your son will be the person that builds the house, but it won't be you. But I want you to understand something, David. I'm going to build you a house. Now, this prophecy is very important. He basically says, look, David, from you, there will be one who rules from your bloodline in perpetuity. Now, David's probably not realizing this, but undoubtedly we are talking about the Messiah, right? Jesus that would sit on that throne being a descendant of David. Now, what's substantial and important concerning this is to recognize what all of this actually means. It's important to recognize the implications of everything that is tied to this, right? Because when you stop for a moment to recognize what's actually being said, it's basically God saying that the Messiah is going to come through your bloodline and he is going to rule forever. Now, people get tripped up with this a lot because the reason why they get tripped up with this is because Nathan tells David, hey, listen, I'm going to build you a house and from your bloodline, they will rule in perpetuity. Now, if you stop for one moment to reflect what had happened with the nation of Israel, particularly the southern kingdom, it would make sense to know why every single king that ruled in the southern kingdom was a descendant of David. There was nobody that did not rule that was not a descendant of David. And of course, when you look at the northern kingdom and the split that had happened there and everything that had taken place, every single king that ruled ruled in the northern kingdom had no relationship to David whatsoever and what was actually tragic was not a single one of them were godly kings so this is what happens David rules as he rules um, he ends up uh, finishing the end of his rule with the life that he had beginning to slip away from him when he dies basically Solomon is the one that is appointed king of Israel Solomon then becomes the king of Israel and God as God promised David Solomon is the one that actually builds the temple right? But what's interesting about this was God said to David that the house was already built and it was the house that he had built for David. And that would mean that every single person that came after him would be of his bloodline. And that final king that sat on the throne would be ruling in perpetuity. Now that becomes very puzzling. And that's difficult because when you think about it, things did not start to look good after Solomon died. Because when Solomon died, he had a son whose name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was of course the king of the last king of Israel when Israel was combined together, right? When it was all 12 tribes, he was the very last king of Israel that ruled over all 12 tribes. He didn't last for long because Jeroboam came to Rehoboam and said, listen, our people are oppressed. This is not good. We have to work extra hard. You know, um, your dad tasked us really hard. And Rehoboam, like a fool, doesn't listen to the wise advisors that his dad had. His dad happened to be the wisest man to ever rule on the face of the earth. But he chose not to listen to the men that advised the wisest ruler on the face of the earth. And he goes back to Jeroboam and he says, hey, tough luck. If if you think my dad was hard, I got more harshness in my little pinky than my dad had in his whole waist. And you're going to just, you're going to have to take it. And of course, Jeroboam says, no, we're not. And they basically leave. They split. And there's a massive civil war that ensues between them and the kingdom is divided. And you've got the kingdom of the north, uh, oftentimes referred to as Israel. And of course, the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. It's a lot easier to talk about what comprised the southern kingdom simply because there were a lot less tribes in the southern kingdom. And of course, for bonus points, can anybody tell me what tribes were part of the southern kingdom. Anybody? 
That's right, Judah Benjamin. You guys are always fast to say that, but then also remember, there was a good amount of Levites that comprised the southern kingdom as well because it was the Levites that, of course, continued to manage the affairs of the temple as long as the temple was erect. So this is very interesting to note, and I think it's critically important because the role of the priest was preserved in the southern kingdom through David's kingly line, and I think that that's something important to recognize because what we find out later is, of course, the one who would rule in perpetuity, Jesus Christ does become not only the king, but also becomes the high priest, right? And there is no priest that replaces him. He is the eternal priest. He's the eternal sacrifice. He's the eternal priest. He's the eternal everything. But it begins to get bad right when Rehoboam comes into play because the kingdom divides and all the kings of the north are wicked rulers. You got 20 some odd kings and there's not a single dynasty represented in them. They're all killing each other. They're all taking over. They're all doing evil things. They're all doing wicked things. They're not good people. They're doing lots of unrighteous things. And that is the story of what happens with the nation of Israel, right? That's what takes place. We're going through the Bible with Pastor James Cadiz here on Light on the Hill. This series entitled in the volume of the book emphasizes the prophecy found in every book of the Bible. To catch what you may have missed in the series, just go to lightonthehillradio.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Pastor James, we're taking sort of a bird's eye view of the Bible and the prophecy contained in it. Why do you think a big picture approach is helpful to our understanding of Bible prophecy? This is a great question, Jane. And the answer to this is really settled in the understanding of the volume of the book. The Bible says this, right? Even Jesus made it clear. He said, look, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And the reality of it is when you understand the Bible as a whole, you are going to better understand God's word to man. And if you understand God's word to man, then you will be confident in what the future holds because the Bible speaks about all of it. And this is why it's critically important to know the Bible and know it well as you look at Bible prophecy, because if you don't know the Bible well, you're going to be in big trouble. And a great example of this is the book of Revelation. If you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you need to know the Old Testament. Listen, it's this way throughout the scriptures. You need to understand the whole context of God's word and your understanding of Bible prophecy will multiply exponentially, by the way. Thanks, Pastor James. We're thankful for the listeners that come alongside of us with prayer and even financial support. To donate today to help us deliver God's word daily, visit lightonthehillradio.com. You can also give through the Light on the Hill app. We'll finish up First and Second Samuel next time on Light on the Hill, a listener-supported ministry brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you, cause all I need is